How many of you had the chance to um, watch some football during this uh, past? Raise your hand if you watched at least one football game or part of a game. Yeah, that, this is a common American experience. And, and I want to just tap that chord for just a moment with you and share with you a story about football that uh, I read earlier this week. Uh, the story is about a, a novelist and a film writer by the name of Lawrence Stallings. Lawrence Stallings, uh, who accepted a very unusual assignment, uh, not at all the kind of thing he typically did, to become a sports writer for a day. And he was um, called in to uh, cover a football game between the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Illinois. I imagine we've got a few Illini in the house, maybe even some UPenn people. The year was 1925. And on that field that particular day, playing for Illinois, was a three-time All-American halfback from Wheaton named Red Grange. Some of you will be familiar with that name, and many of us not. Well, at Wheaton High School, uh, Red Grange earned 16 varsity letters. He played football, basketball, track, uh, and baseball, and lettered everywhere. And in, and in 1923, he led the Fighting Illini to the national championship of football. The very next year, in a, in a game against the very highly vaunted Michigan Wolverines, Grange returned the kickoff for 95 yards for a touchdown. And then in the next 12 minutes, scored three more touchdowns. And I'm not even going to tell you about the second half because it was mind-blowing, equally amazing. Uh, no less an authority than ESPN would one day, many years later, name Red Grange the greatest college football player of all time. So, Red Grange, I want you to know that name. Well, on this particular day in 1925, uh, Grange was not only in the game, he was like redefining <laughs> the game. On this impossibly muddy field, uh, the Galloping Ghost, which, by the way, what, that was the nickname that they had for Red Grange. The Galloping Ghost just floated across the field like some kind of supernatural apparition that just could not be stopped. And, and gangs of the Michigan uh, or the Illini um, uh, opponents that day uh, were just struggling to bring them down. But no, the UPenn team just could, could make no progress as, as Grange broke the tackles for touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. And up in the press box, a whole army of sports writers were, you know, clacking out the record of this whole amazing event on their typewriters, furiously working to report it for the next day's news, except for one person in the press box. And it was Lawrence Stalling. Remember, he was a novelist and a film writer by trade. And his story writing sensibilities, this ability to see the meaning of things which had shown up on screen and in novels, uh, what just gave him an unusual ability to perceive the significance and the grandeur of what was happening out there on that field. And while everybody else is working at the typewriters, he's just walking back and forth in the press box like this. He's just pacing back and forth. And he finally wails in a way that everybody can hear. He said, I can't, I can't write. 
write it. It's just too big. It's just too big. Well, I tell you this tale because the story that I'm going to try and cover with you today is, is, is so close to this message. <laughs> the message of this story is just, it's too big to do full justice uh, to. So I'm just going to apologize at the start that I'm not, I'm not going to hardly even come close to telling this particular story in the way that it should be told. You're going to have to study it for yourself. Uh, and I encourage you to do that. I'm going to try and just orient you to this story by inviting you to go galloping with me across a 16-chapter field of the Bible as, as we see God working in an incredible way through the remainder of the book of Exodus. This is the final installment. This is the last episode in a 12-week-long uh, series we've been doing uh, we've been calling Wild, the story of God's work in the lives of the people of Exodus. So when we pick up the story this particular week, the man that we call Moses, who, as most of you will be aware, was an uncommon person with a remarkable life story, a strange confluence of events that, that made no sense to him at certain moments, but were all being used by God to prepare him for the unique role he would play in history. This, this man, Moses, has, has, has been used of the Lord to lead his people, Israel, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, through the Arabian Desert, to the foot of this huge mountain called Sinai. And there on that mountain, Moses has his own mind-blowing experience, a too-big experience also. God calls Moses into this personal encounter with him, during which the Lord gives Moses the Ten Commandments. We've all heard of those. And those commandments will become, not trivially, among the most influential words in human history. And even more dramatically and more importantly, God is going to give Moses an up-close and personal experience of what scripture calls the glory of God, God's glory. We're told that when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. The Bible says that to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. It was like a volcanic uh, thing going on at the top of this mountain. It was a ghostly cloud of flame and smoke. And Moses entered into this incredible thing going on up there and stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, a little sidebar here. The Bible is full of these 40-day, 40 40-night, 40 40-year uh, storylines. And, and when, whenever you hear a term, uh, uh, an event described in these terms, whether it's Noah staying in the, in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights, or, or, or Moses being in this cloud for 40 days or 40 nights, or Jesus going out into the wilderness and being tempted by the devil for 40 uh, days and 40 nights, it's, it's God's way of saying, enough time to get my purposes fulfilled. And so Moses, something's going on inside the cloud, and God is doing something that is going to prove very important 
to his purposes. So when you read about the 40s in Scripture, it's, they're very often more theological statements than they are chronological statements. So back to the glory thing. When you hear that word glory, what do you think of? Do you have any associations with that word glory? Um, today, I think we often associate glory with the idea of fame or, or maybe credit, as in the way a, a football player or a, another celebrity gets the glory or the credit for performing well. When the Bible speaks about the glory of the Lord, it's talking about something that's almost too big to get our minds around. Uh, because the word glory is really simply how we describe the summary effect of all of God's attributes. It's like we couldn't find a way of describing it adequately. So we use the word glory to sort of get at this overwhelming, overloading encounter with all of God's attributes, his grace, his truth, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his knowledge, his power, his, his eternality, all that God is, is summed up in that word. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, author Rick Warren and pastor writes that the glory, that glory is who God is. Glory is who God is. And Warren says this, God's glory is the essence of his nature. It's the weight of his importance. It's the radiance of his splendor. It's the demonstration of his power. It's the atmosphere of his presence, it is the expression of his goodness, and remember that, because we'll come back to that idea, and all his other intrinsic, eternal qualities. That's what the word glory, when referred to God, is all about. Now, by saying, using that word intrinsic, Rick Warren means that, that glory is to God as light is to the sun. As wet is to water, as, on the morning's theme, as cold is to snowflakes. Um, glory is not an external thing about God. Glory is intrinsic to God. Um, it, is, it is in him, it is of him. It's who he is. Human glory isn't like this. Human glory is extrinsic. That is to say, it's something outside of themselves, gets applied to themselves. And I'll give you an example of that. Suppose you pick some member of the British royal family, not Meghan Markle, not somebody that we see all the time, but any other member of the, of the, of the British royal family, and you took them out of their castles or palace or where they may be, and you took off their really spec spectacular clothes, and you took away a crown, and you, you put them in some... Uh, backwater part of London, and you left them there for several weeks without uh, any money. They had to kind of scrap for themselves in that environment. And then you, and then you put that person right next to uh, a beggar, and you came along and you looked at the two of them. You would probably have trouble determining who the beggar was and who the royal one was. Because there's no intrinsic glory to that aristocrat. The glory that human beings have is granted to them by other people. The glory that is God's, however, is, is just in his essence. 
Um, you can't de-glory God. You, you, you can't do that. It's in his nature. It can't be taken away. And his glory can't be even added to. It is his being. God's glory is the most beautiful, awesome, reorienting reality in the universe. To truly behold the glory of God is to get changed by it. You will not be the same. When you've caught even a glimpse of his glory, it alters you. It's that powerful. So in Exodus 33, Moses makes this amazing prayer. And we, we read all kinds of prayers in the Bible. People asking, you know, Lord, feed me. Lord, give me this. You know, Solomon had an even better prayer. He said, Lord, give me wisdom like you have. Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. My friend John Ortberg inquires in response to that particular text. He says, have you ever asked God for that? Have you ever, have you ever said, God, just show me who you really are. And, and, and if you were God being asked that question by Moses, my friend says, would you show him thunder and lightning? Would you show him a tremendous earthquake? Would you show him huge galaxies or special effects? How would you answer that prayer to show me your glory? No, says John Ortberg. The Lord said, and I quote scripture, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. How will I show you my glory? I will show you all my goodness passing in front of you. In other words, and this is really important, take this in. The most glorious thing about God is not his cataclysmic power. It's not his sincering holiness. The most glorious thing about God is how good he is. <laughs> Unbelievably good he is. His stunning humility, his tremendous kindness and compassion, his grace and mercy, his generosity and perseverance with us, his redeeming love, this is God's glory. And it's just so big, really too big to even get our arms around. But God continues in the story, you can't see my face, Moses, which I always take to mean you can't see the total fullness of who I am, for no one may see me and live. For no one may see the fullness of me and live. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I suspect it's because God's glorious goodness is just too big for human beings to contain it unmediated. It would be like if we ever saw all of who God is unmediated, it would melt us or it would explode us. It would be like downloading the, 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 the most intelligent brain power of the universe or the most extraordinary heartbeat in all of existence and just downloading it into the body of an ant. What would happen? Boom. The ant couldn't contain it. No way. No way. It would destroy the creature. So God 
in his kindness, mediates, moderates um, his nature to us. And so in this story, and I love this image, and I hope you'll catch it in your brain here, God actually hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. He pokes him into a, a cleft in the rock, and then the story says that God put his hand over the cleft. And, and he just, and he, his goodness passed by, and he allowed Moses a glimpse of the back of his glory. <laughs> just a little glimpse of the glory. And we're told later in chapter 34 that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the Israelites noticed that he had been changed by this encounter with even a glimpse of God's glory. His face was radiant. His face glowed because he had spoken with the Lord. Uh, how wonderful would it be if every time you and I came out of a worship service or a time of fellowship with God, other people looked at us and went, wow, you're, you're like glowing. I mean, there's something radiant about you. And, and I think if we truly get who God is and, and, and really allow that in and, and to affect us, it is going to change us in various ways. And something of the radiance of his glory is going to be reflected in the way we interact with the other people uh, that we meet. So I, I wish we had more time in, to dive into detail in all of these chapters. But as I said, it's too big to, to go after here. But I will just hit on a couple of, of the quick ideas or the big ideas that we get in these, uh, in these chapters quickly. There's a story in chapter 32 where the Israelites get tired of waiting for Moses to come down the mountain. How long is he up on the mountain? 40 days and 40 nights, right? It's a long time. It's not that long a time, if you think about it, compared to all that they've experienced already of God, like who saved them from slavery in Egypt and parted the seas and took them in through the Arabian desert and protected them against all these marauders and, and gave them manna when they needed it and supplied water from a rock when they needed that. I mean, God has been unbelievably good to the people of Israel. He's shown them a lot of his character in that time, but within 40 days, they forget about him. Within 40 days... They lose their focus on God. And, and, and because Moses has been their main mediator with God, now that the pastor's gone, they're like, I'm not sure I'm still in this. This is a great reminder to every church. Worship the master, not the pastor. Right? Pastors fail us all the time. They're fickle. They, they go here and there. It's happening all over America today. Keep your focus on the master. And because Pastor Moses has left the scene, the Israelites get very disoriented, and they get restless, and they start looking for something else to put their focus and worship on. And so they ask Moses' assistant, Aaron, his brother, to make them some new gods. Make us some new gods. And in a hugely historically stupid moment, Aaron goes, yeah, okay, okay, I'll do that. 
Why does Aaron do this? Well, we're not explicitly told the answer to that question. Maybe, maybe he's scared of the crowd. Maybe he sees them as like this restless mob. You know, you're thinking, come back down, Moses. I mean, I don't know how to control these people. And they're, and they're starting to get very, very reckless. And they're demanding things. And so maybe Aaron acts a little bit like Pontius Pilate does in the New Testament, where the crowd is getting all worked up. And he thinks, i got to pacify these people. In fact, a little later in the story, after he does the thing that they're asking him to do, he sets up an altar in front of the idol they've asked him to make to try and steer them back again to God. But it's too late. I mean, it's gotten really, really bad. They've lost their original focus. And, and so Aaron tells them to give them the gold jewelry they have. And you may remember from the earlier studies that we've done that when they left Egypt, the Israelites were given by the Egyptians all this jewelry to take with them on their journey as an act of sort of almost of, of reparation for their years of slavery. And now this jewelry is used and it's melted down by Aaron and it's molded into something called a golden calf. And now the people of Israel start worshiping the golden calf. They start dancing around it and partying around the golden calf. It's just an incredible scene. Uh, it's important to remember at this particular moment, the Hebrew people aren't a bunch of well-educated stockbrokers, lawyers, doctors, and, and entertainment producers. They are a primitive people still. 3,500 years ago, uh, there, there's a lot of paganism in, in, the, in all the cultures of humanity. Um, and, and so here they are just sort of parting it up around this golden object. Some years ago, I, I was traveling with a group of folks in this church, and uh, we were retracing the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. We were going to the different places that he had visited on his um, journeys. And we wound up in this, um, in this little church just out on the edge of, of Rome uh, that had this statue in it that you see up on, on the screen. Um, and the statue was really imposing. It's larger than life uh, figure. And you recognize, almost before you're told the answer to this, you recognize who, who, who carved that. I mean, it is so magnificent. It was Michelangelo. And Michelangelo captures in this statue the figure of Moses just after he's come down from the mountain. And you see him sitting there, and he's got the uh, Ten Commandment tablets in his arms, and you see, you're seeing his head starting to turn. What do you think his head is turning towards? He's catching a glimpse of the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. He has been with the glory of God and the children of Israel after just 40 days are worshiping this trinket. And he can't believe it. And when you're there in this church, and I hope you get there to this church at some point, you can actually, Michelangelo captured not just the look in Moses' face, he captured, you see the right knee turning in the, in, the, in the photograph? He captured the tensing of the leg muscles of Moses that are telling you he's about to get up and go postal on the pagans, <laughs> which, which is what he does. He, I mean, he, he, there's an incredible... 
brutal judgment that gets poured out on the people for their appalling apostasy, for their incredible betrayal of God who has served them so faithfully. It's a reminder of how much God hates idolatry, uh, how much God's heart is affected when he sees us turning from the glory that could be ours towards this, this lesser stuff it, in spite of all of the things that he's done for us in life. And idolatry amongst God's people is a continuing issue. It's a continuing problem, not only in the ways that you regularly hear preachers talking about it. I mean, you probably glaze, actually, when you hear preachers talking about idolatry. Because uh, you think, of, ah, you're just going to go on about our materialism and you're going to be upset about how we, we follow after celebrities. And, you know, I've heard that before. Um, and that certainly is a form of idolatry to be taken seriously. Um, you can think, each of us can think, about things that we honor, seek after, serve, that are above God, which makes no sense if we understand his real glory and goodness. I love, however, what a local pastor from Arlington Heights, a guy named Lee Eckloff, says about this. He says, our greatest threat may not be the little golden gods of TV and leisure, of work and money, but the great God. Our greatest threat may be that we take the great God, the Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai, and minimize him. That may be the worst kind of idolatry. That we start thinking it's enough to sort of pay a nodding approval to a very little God in our thinking. We, we may not deny God outright, but we too often let our view of God grow small, says Eckloth. It's sort of like our snapshots of the Grand Canyon or like a Mount Rushmore paperweight and and we think oh we've captured God this passage is trying to tell us that we have got to constantly work to recover and to respond to the reality of a God whose whose glory is too big to ever be conveniently boxed and who is too good to really know and not be utterly changed by. And we must never allow that image to become our God. That's our task every single day, to wake up and say to ourselves, today, Lord, I'm going to find you and see you more properly as you really are. I'm just, I'm just going to have eyes for the glory of who you are. And I pray that it radiates off of me your goodness to the people that I meet. I don't think God is really surprised in this story by how fickle um, and distractible his people are. I think God understands that without regular encounters with his glory, even the most devout of us will have this tendency to lose our focus or lose our faith. And so in the last chapters of the book of Exodus, we see God laying the foundations of an almost mind-boggling plan. 
And if you've been reading along in the book with us in this series, then you know that one of the ways God has been revealing himself to the Israelites and, and, and reassuring them that they are not forgotten and, and reminding them of who he is in the wilderness, one of the ways he's been doing this is by holding these regular encounters with Moses and with the people of Israel at something called the Tent of Meeting. We haven't talked about this yet, but he's instructed them to, to build this tent of meeting. It's a literal tent, like it's canvas. It's like something you might take on a backpacking trip. And they set it up outside of the Israelite camp at a distance from where everybody's sleeping and, and living and eating and stuff. And, and God shows up regularly at the tent of meeting. His glory, uh, a cloud settles on the tent of meeting. And Moses meets with him and talks with God there. And the people stand outside and wait for the word to come out to them. And, and it keeps them on track, keeps them uh, connected, in a sense, with the presence of God in their daily lives. I guess you could say in some ways, you know, going to worship is a little like going to the tent of meeting or joining my small group or, or Bible study is like going to the tent of meeting. It's a way for me to stay connected to God and to hear his word in a fresh way. Well, after the golden calf episode, God institutes an even stronger measure. And while meeting up with Moses on Mount Sinai, God imparts to him detailed instructions for the construction of something called the tabernacle. Have you ever heard of that term, the tabernacle? Um, the tabernacle um, is, is, is a structure that actually incorporates the tent of meeting, but it's much, much bigger than that. And, and this tabernacle is even more elaborate than the tent of meeting ever could be. And you can read all about the instructions that God gives uh, on the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 31. And then Exodus 35 through 40 is the actual construction of the tabernacle. Uh, what's Im most important to know is that, that like the Passover feast, the commemoration of how God uh, sacrifice the blood of the innocent one to uh, pay the price needed to release them from the bondage of, of Egypt. Uh, just like the Passover feast, which the Israelites observed every single year, the tabernacle becomes one of the few great constants in the life of Israel. Meaning that the landscape from here on out changes for Israel. They're on the road again. They've been hanging out at Sinai for many, many years. Now they're on the road towards the promised land. And the tabernacle is the great constant that is with them. All of us need great constants in an ever-changing life. You know, this world's going to change faster and faster and faster. We have to have these places, these places of focus that are the, that are the constant for us, that steady us that remind us of our identity, our belonging, our purpose. I always hope that these kinds of gatherings can, can function that way for, for many, many of us. Um, what are the great constants in your life? You know, what can you count on to, to root you again in your identity, your sense of belonging and purpose? Um, for the children of Israel, the tabernacle was that. And it went with them everywhere they went. As they journeyed along and even into the promised land, um, and you can read about the rest of that journey, by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy. It doesn't get included in Exodus. Uh, every time they moved, they tore down the tabernacle. They, 
they packed it up, they ported it to the next location, and then they reset it up. So it would be there as this place of communion and fellowship with the glory of God. The text says, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, the cloud of God's presence lifted, they would set out and they'd follow the cloud to the next location. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night. Why? So they could see it in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Now here's where I'm just sad that we don't have more time to talk about the detail here, but let me tell you a little bit about the tabernacle. Because the design of the tabernacle is really significant. One thing I want you to know about it is that it, it was made of three layers of fabric. The outer layer was um, goat skin and badger skin. And it was kind of nasty to look at. But underneath that part of the tent, there was another layer. This one was goat hair. It was softer. It's nicer to look at. And then underneath that layer was, was linen. And the linen was dyed beautiful colors. So the big idea is that if you came upon the tabernacle from the outside, you'd go, ooh, that doesn't look very impressive. Ooh. But if you approached it from the east which is where the only door into the tabernacle was, and you, and you entered in, you suddenly found yourself in a magnificent place. Uh, you would never have guessed it from the outside. You had to enter in to experience the wonder of, of, of what was there. And then inside the, the, the entry of the tabernacle, the first thing you would encounter was an altar. And the altar was, was a place to offer up the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. And the tabernacle and that altar reminded people that, that we come close to God only through an atoning sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that pays the price for sin. Uh, the next symbol that you would meet in the tabernacle was a washbowl, a big washbowl. And every Israelite was, was asked to and invited to pass through those cleansing waters in preparation for an encounter with the glorious God. And next to the washbowl was a table that held what was called the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. And uh, we think that might have been, uh, uh, might have been manna that somehow was preserved. We don't know for sure, but it was a sign that God had provided for his people and would provide for his people always. And it was on this table, this bread of the presence. Um, and then illuminating the whole tent was a seven-branched lampstand, or menorah, as it came to be called, which was made of 70 pounds of solid gold that had been um, made from the melted gold jewelry that we talked about earlier. In fact, it was probably made from the melted gold cast when, uh, when Moses came down from the mountain and did away with that. And, and the lamp represented the light of life that God gives to his people. Um, and, 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 and I'm told also there was, a, um, an in, there was a place for burning incense, which symbolized prayers going up to heaven. And in the inmost place in the tabernacle, in that sacred place known as the Holy of Holies, 
was a wooden cabinet, a wooden cabinet that was called the Ark of the Covenant. And it held inside of it the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the word of God to people. And this wooden cabinet was also called the mercy seat. Now, I invite you to to pay attention to those details and to consider their meaning, and maybe you're already starting to draw some conclusions or parallels. So let me ask you a question. What do you think the percentage chances are that not just one or, or a few of these symbols or, or a little bit of this language, but all of it would come together 1,500 years later in the life of one person. To paraphrase Pastor Newt Larson, when Jesus came into our world, he said a number of things that strangely line up with what we read in this part of the book of Exodus. He said, I am the sacrificial lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of the world. I am the living water. Drink from me, be washed by me, and you will be cleansed. I am the bread of life the bread of the presence of God. I am the light of the world. I am the living word, the divine logos. I I, I am the one who offer forgiveness of sin for all people. And, And he gave his life at the greatest mercy seat, also made of wood, it seems. Now, now maybe that's all just coincidence. You know, Maybe, maybe kind of like the mathematically improbable circumstances that led to life on this planet. Uh, maybe like the billions of unique convergences that created the genetic material that became you and is the reason why you're sitting here in this conversation today. Maybe that just all happened by accident that these things all lined up. But if that's not enough, here's one more remarkable confluence to think about as we prepare to go. We conclude our study of Exodus today. We're going to turn next week to another story, one that the apostle John summarizes with this verse. He writes, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his what? His glory. Do you know that the Greek phrase that we translate as made his dwelling among us or dwelt amongst us is built on a much older Hebrew and Aramaic phrase which literally means he pitched his tent. He tabernacled amongst us. What John was declaring is that the glorious being, the too big being, that revealed a glimpse of his glory to the people of Israel and to Moses in ancient times, 
who guided them on their journey towards the land of promise, this time had decided to come even closer to people still. And that he had entered into the very tent of human flesh and he had tabernacled amongst people for 33 years and that he did so so that not just Israel, but all people in all places, in all times, could behold his glory, might discover his life-changing goodness for themselves, and that I hope as you journey with this people, you're discovering something of that glory and that goodness, and that it's beginning now to radiate from your life too. And as we're going to see when we return to the start of the Advent season next week, wise men and women are still seeking the glory, still seeking to know him and allow him into their lives and to honor him. And if you thought this series was wild, you're going to find the next one is magical. And I look forward to rejoining you as we come back to God's story next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the wonder of who you are and for your desire to help us become more like you. This we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.